Okay, hi everyone and welcome to the Talking, Learning and Teaching podcast. I have a very, very special guest with us today. It's Dr. Eric J. Moore. Eric J. Moore, PhD, serves as Director of Learning Technology for the Kennedy Krieger Institute. He practices and promotes UDL and accessibility, and this is part of his daily work and short and long-term plans. Additionally, Eric is co-founder and until recently co-chair and Digicon chair for the Universal Design for Learning Higher Education Network, which brings together professionals practicing UDL from institutes of higher education around the world. Eric is interested in and committed to being an accomplice in making education in all contexts and all levels more equitable for all. Eric, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. Thank you. No, thank you for being here. Before we go any further with the questions uh, mm-hmm. that I'm going to ask you, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about, uh, well, I'm going to ask you actually and pick your brains a little bit about teacher education and universal design for learning. I think it would be quite nice if you could um, tell us a little bit about the Kennedy Krieger Institute and, and what it does and what your role is there. Sure. So the Kennedy Krieger Institute is an affiliate of Johns Hopkins University and Medical School. So, you know, we are a specialized hospital research hospital that focuses on um, pediatric disabilities and recovery from trauma, that type of thing. Um, And so it's really one of the the world premier places for um, for research and development in those areas. So it's very exciting to be part of this team um, and part of some, some world-class neurodevelopmental neuro-deve- specialists and practitioners. And so my role here is with regards to training development, um, to bring together an instructional design team to help develop and promote um, high quality and accessible training materials for both internal and external usage. That sounds fantastic, Eric. And, and obviously that those issues around accessibility and, and high quality are something that's that's really inherent within within UDL. So, I mean, I've invited you on the show today to, to speak to us a little bit about teacher education and universal design for learning. And I've, I've done that partly for selfish reasons, because that's what I'm involved in. Um, so you've worked in teacher education, supporting and developing colleagues with their UDL practices. And as I said, I'm involved in this, too. Mm-hmm. One of my reflections is that in higher education particularly, it can sometimes be hard to convince some colleagues of the need to adapt their practices to better reflect UDL. Do you have the same issues in the American context and do colleagues need much encouragement or even coercion to become more UDL in their approach? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we definitely do see that here as well, especially in the context of higher education. There's a lot of fierce independence among faculty, um, departments as a whole, and then individual faculty members oftentimes have a very strong sense of um, individual purpose, like they have a research agenda, um, especially in R1 institutions, research agendas often come before teaching, you know, quality teaching and preparation, honestly, even in the context of teacher education programs. So we do see that, you know, and so coming in and introducing UDL as um, something else, you know, that you need to change your practice to to really bring it up to speed with this this approach of designing with universal design for learning is oftentimes met with resistance. And so there there is need to be strategic about how we approach faculty to that end. 
So one of the things that I found to be of critical importance to this is to not introduce UDL as one more thing, um, as a solution in search of a problem. You know, that just doesn't seem to work. Rather, what seems to be most effective is to be working with faculty who have already identified a problem. So, for example, their first-generation college students are struggling, or, you know, they're getting sued for non-accessibility compliance, you know, or, you know, students are revolting that they feel like the quality of education is poor, whatever. You know, when they already have a problem, then they're more willing to listen to potential solutions. So the advent of COVID um, in the United States back in March of 2020 was really a huge push for UDL because it created a very immediate problem, you know, where people were having to shift their curriculum online for the first time um, and were struggling and their students were struggling. You know, when you find these types of problems and then introduce UDL not as some additional thing to do, but as a solution to help address the very real and present problems that people are facing, we see a lot more progress. The second thing that I found to be very effective is to build community around UDL. And that kind of comes out in two ways. One way you can approach this community is to, to really seek to develop it within a unit on campus. So for example, within a department, or within a college. Um, and that requires typically getting somebody higher up in that unit, a department chair or a dean, um, to buy in and to set it as part of the vision and mission of the department. And then you seek to, to really develop the faculty and staff within that department around UDL as a team. One of the big strengths that we see with that model is it allows people to explore what UDL looks like in the context of their specific discipline. So it becomes pedagogical content knowledge instead of general pedagogical knowledge. So in the context of teacher education, for example, the way that I've framed it often was that we want to prepare teachers to be highly effective and that teachers will teach the way they've been taught not or teach the way they've been taught, not the way they've been taught to teach. You know, so when we can model these best practices, including UDL, there's a much higher likelihood that they will go forth and practice it themselves. And that's a good rally cry for teacher education. In biology or math or engineering, it's going to be different. You know, so it's about finding the right language for that context and then selling it within that specific context. The other approach is to seek to form a professional learning community that represents staff and faculty from different departments on campus. And, you know, then it becomes more general pedagogical knowledge, you know, and the community becomes formed around, you know, meals or coffee or, you know, conversations. Um, and that can be a faster way to, to see transformation across the university instead of in an isolated context. Um, and it has that strength. Each of them has limitations as well. So if we develop UDL only within teacher education, for example, then it becomes hard when you're talking to the engineering faculty to say, well, look at what teacher education is doing. And they say, well, engineering is nothing like teacher education. Why would that work here, right? And it becomes a hard sell, actually. Um, on the other hand, if we go with the professional learning community across the campus, then sometimes it's hard for students um, to really get the full measure of the UDL experience because they might only have it with one or two faculty members throughout their program, you know, and they don't really have an opportunity to develop as robust 
expert learners. It was just, I had a great class that one time, right? And it's not really the same effect. So each has pros and cons. Ultimately, you want to see both come together. So whichever one you start with, like if you start with the PLC, I've seen success then recruiting, for example, that faculty from engineering, that faculty from teacher education, to then be ambassadors back to their department and, and make it relevant for their department as a whole. And if you start with, um, you know, with the department doing it, then showcasing that to the provost to show, look how we've transformed this department in three or four years because of this. Isn't this something we want for the others as well, you know, and get that admin buy-in. So you just have to be strategic about how you approach it. There's no one right way. You need to have a UDL navigator, as I call it, who kind of thinks through all of this and finds the right entry point and expands from there. Thanks for that, Eric. I mean, that was a really comprehensive answer and some fascinating insights there. Um, I think my own reflections are working with with teachers, with educators that have got quite a bit of experience in higher education. There's almost been a process of getting them to unlearn what they know or what they think mm. they know about effective approaches to, to supporting learning. And that yeah. can sometimes be a challenge. One of the things that stood out and, and I want to follow up on from from the answer you provided there, Eric, was was the uh, the impact of, of COVID, because obviously you talked about it's easier to support when uh, various departments present with a problem. And obviously COVID presented us all with a problem in relation to, to learning and teaching. I just wondered whether in your experience, COVID has provided an opportunity uh, to enhance UDL practice because effectively mm -hmm. it's provided people with that problem to, to, to need to reflect on their practice. Has it been sort of mm -hmm. easier to get people to adopt UDL post-COVID, do you think? In my experience, it has been. Um, it really goes back to that, that insight that you shared there about teacher educators needing to unlearn and, and also there being a sense of pride among teacher educators that they're experts in education, you know, and so like it's hard for them to have somebody come in and say that the way you're teaching isn't great <laughs> or it can get better because, you know, they're they're uh, they're experts in education as well. But what COVID did, I think, is it pushed a lot of people out of their comfort zone, out of their the range of expertise. So somebody who's been teaching in the classroom for 30 years, but has never set foot in designing for an online learning experience. Um, can freely admit without without losing face, I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> like, I need help, right? And, um, you know, UDL and technology have always kind of had a strong relationship. Some people argue that UDL doesn't require technology. I would agree with that, but I would say absolutely UDL is enhanced by the presence of technology. Like, it's much easier to put choice in students' hands in a technology-mediated environment than not. And so that particular combination of having people willing to learn, seeking information, and being an environment in which we can really showcase how UDL can shine has provided the right sort of um, an opportunity to sell UDL quickly and efficiently. To me, the question is, how do we sustain that after people begin moving back to the brick and mortar classrooms.
interesting that you you mentioned the the importance of technology there because one of our future episodes on the talking learning and teaching podcast is to explore the influence of technology on udl and we're going to be speaking to some colleagues uh, at cast over in the us uh, to help us unpick that a little bit but I, I certainly agree that i think um you can you can do udl learning and teaching practices without the need for technology, but it certainly enhances it. If we think about the flexibility of, of options across the various principles, you, mm-hmm. you, you're bound to have far more flexibility with, with technological options there as well. So, I mean, mm-hmm. you, you may well have answered the next question to an extent, Eric, but I, I wanted to ask you what you think the greatest challenges are when supporting educators to develop UDL teaching practices. Hmm. Yeah, I think one of the biggest thing that we see is is time as a resource being being a premium. You know, a lot of faculty, regardless of what type of institution you're in, whether it's, it's a high research output institution or a teaching institution, faculty are oftentimes stretched um, for time, you know, across multiple responsibilities with service and research and teaching, um, you know, and, and UDL. Honestly, I, I don't feel that you can practice UDL as a quick one-off sort of thing. You know, you might get your foot in the door, but as David Rose has said before, UDL is culture change. I mean, it really is a comprehensive undoing of the way we've been doing things since at least the 18th century in education and replacing it um, with, with a new model that, that is very much um, student-centric, flexible, you know, clear goals, flexible means. It is it, very transformative and it does require a lot of design. You know, design is built into UDL's name um, and, and design doesn't happen overnight. You know, I, I liken it often when I'm talking to my pre-service teachers, I talk about um, you know, an architect who's being tasked to build a building. They don't just whip together a plan like there's a lot of inquiry that has to go into that who is this going to be used for for what purpose you know what's the budget what are the resources available like there's so much analysis and so much design that goes in before the contractors ever get involved to start building and yet in education we often start by throwing up a wall you know before before we've even thought about what we're doing here um udl really forces us to, to second guess that entire process to go back and be teaching and learning engineers and architects, you know, building learning experiences that are going to be useful for a wide range of students. That does take time, is top heavy. You know, the argument that I try to make to people is that that investment pays off because just because I can send information to students quickly if I do things the way I've always done does not mean that students are learning. Um, And to me, the whole idea of efficiency is contingent on effectiveness. You know, I might lecture for an hour and cover a bunch of content, but if students didn't learn anything, that was highly inefficient, right? So we have to kind of see this. It, it does take time, but it's worth it. Nevertheless, finding that time for faculty, even motivated faculty, is critically important and difficult right now. This is one of the reasons that we need higher administrator buy-in um, to be willing to, to value this practice, not just in words, but in actions in giving people time release um, to go to work with specialists and instructional designers and so forth to radically redesign their courses um, and to be, you know, again, showing that value through action of giving them time, giving them resources to make it happen. Until that happens, we cannot see UDL progress in higher education. 
I particularly like the whole idea of a of a learning and teaching architect or engineer, Eric. I might have to steal that and put that on my CV. <laughs> I think. Um, but I'll obviously uh, I'll obviously cite you, and you you can get the credit for it. But I I totally agree. I mean, I think what's happening post COVID, particularly in the UK higher education context, is there are a number of universities that are probably thinking about redesigning how they deliver learning and teaching for this new era mm. um, and I totally agree with you I think a lot more thought perhaps needs to go into that process than than is perhaps currently understood mm. um, and, and you're absolutely right I think you know it's not just a case of, of pulling something together that's a bit different from what went before it it's a whole new thinking and new design process isn't it so no some really really insightful answers there um, if you were to advise a novice teacher educator about how best to sell UDL to a community of teachers, what would your advice to them be? So how are you going to get those people on side? Mm -hmm. Well, just like I, I feel like teacher educators need to be models, I feel like teachers have an opportunity to be models as well. Um, you know, so what I wish to tell that novice teacher is, is that you need to do your best to, to be um, practicing what you preach to really to really showcase um, a, a, what a UDL teaching environment looks like and how per, you know put out your students' work for the world to see in the hallways you know and so forth. Um, invite your fellow your colleagues to come observe your class and give you feedback. You know, like become become a lighthouse essentially. Right. The idea isn't to to try to push onto other people, but to try to pull them in to be a well. Um, the other peoples are drawn to. This is especially important because of the social nuances that occur in many schools where if you're a novice teacher, um, you know, it, it goes against the grains for you to show up and, you know, try to start teaching the more experienced teachers in the same way that it's difficult sometimes to reach his education faculty. There's pride. You know, we're humans. <laughs> if, if I've been in the school for 15 years and some hotshot from college comes in and starts telling me what to do, we're starting off on the wrong foot. You know, on the other hand, if, if they're just doing things that I've never seen before and they're inviting me to just witness and give them feedback, that allows for a much more socially palatable um, opportunity for us to grow together. So I, I would suggest that be a model, be a lighthouse, invite feedback and 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 don't do so just covertly like I'm secretly trying to teach people. Also seek to learn because these experienced teachers also have wisdom, whether it's UDL or not. Um, from which you can learn. And when you helped contribute to that culture of, of collegial sharing and co-learning, it's better for everybody. I couldn't agree more. One of our institution-wide um, approaches to, to adopting UDL within our own institution, De Montfort University, was to identify people that could be champions of UDL mm. um, for the purposes of showcasing and sharing their work, trying to be that lighthouse that you mentioned. And mm -hmm. it wasn't about trying to, to tell people how they should teach. It was just, look, here's an approach that somebody's used. It's been very effective. Um, it pulls in some technology. The students have, have provided good feedback and there are elements of this potentially that you could draw upon. Mm. I think one of the other things that we tried to do was 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 identify practices that people were already applying that had elements of UDL within them. 
and sort of mm. say to them, you know, this isn't brand new. You don't have to completely change what you're doing. I'm sure there are elements of universal design for learning that you're already working with. And it's about really espousing those things. Mm. So I think awareness as well is, is a big part of that. Um, Again, we're probably building on some of the answers that you've already provided here, Eric. But, you know, if I was a novice teacher, if I was somebody that was new to teaching in higher education and I came to you for some UDL teaching advice, what would your top tips be to get me started? Mm. Well, the first thing is, is I think I would call for um, for them to be intentionally reflective in their practice. I think this is an essential quality of effective UDL practitioners is that they are constantly and profoundly reflective. So, for example, um, in my pre-service teacher courses on the very first day of class, what I what I love to do is, is start class by asking them what they expect to have happen on the first day of class, right? And we kind of talk about this, like they expect me to go through the syllabus. They expect to do some sort of a name game, right? Um, to, to overview the major assignments for the course and to get out early. Right. This tends to be, you know, sort of the breakdown. And so then we walk through this, you know, why do we go through the syllabus? What is the function of this? You know, and they kind of brainstorm this in groups and share out. Well, it's to give us like, the, you know, the, the forest of what's going to happen in the course before the trees, you know, so that we're clear. And then I follow up with, is this effective? Do you, do you, you know, this first week you're going to be going through six or seven syllabi across your different classes. Do you remember all of that? Like, does it really help you have clarity and focus for the class because you did that on the first day? And generally people say no, right? And at which point we have to ask them, why do we keep doing it, right? Like, we have to be willing to interrogate the practices that we've done instead of just doing them because this is just what's always been done. Right. Um, I feel like that's essentially at the heart of that design process that, that captures both the analysis and design aspects um, that need to preclude action for UDL practitioners to look for those pain points like this is the way that I've been teaching. Is it successful? Is it reaching the students the way that I intend for it to? And if not, why am I still doing it? Right. And that opens them up for them being inquisitive, you know, exploring what what can I do to address this, to, to better succeed um, and help my learners succeed and look into the guidelines, look into the UDL framework, you know, that then it finds its proper place. Because I think too often people look at the UDL guidelines and just see, you know, 31 things to do. And that's the wrong mindset. Or even like, I'm just going to pull some of these to like as best practices. That's also the wrong mindset, right? UDL really finds its strength when we've thought through where do we want, where do I want my learners to go? What's getting in their way? And how can I better use these practices intentionally to give them pathways and flexible means so that all of my learners can get there? Um, so that reflection is is central to being a UDL practitioner, and I would always start there. Thanks for that, Eric. I think that's a an incredible answer because I mean certainly what happens in most um, sort of standard situations in terms of the way that people enter academia in in the UK is they they begin teaching in in higher education before they receive any sort of documentation or qualification that that underpins that and if I go through my own experiences I mean I, I just taught the way that my 
PhD supervisor taught me as an undergraduate. Mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. I just mimicked. I didn't necessarily understand whether that was the right approach to use. Mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily know whether the students were learning from it. I felt that I learned effectively from it, but I was one student among many. Um, mm-hmm. And I just continued that trend of sort of, you know, standing behind a lectern and, and pontificating on, on my specialist subject. I think mm-hmm. that element of reflection, you know, questioning, you know, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? Does it work? Are the mm-hmm. students learning is absolutely critical, isn't it? And I think that's absolutely fantastic advice. Mm-hmm. Just turning our attentions to the future then. I mean, what do you think the future of UDL might look like? What what are the areas that will grow and develop in the coming years, do you think, in relation to UDL, if 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 any, of course? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, one of the big things is is the research base around UDL needs to be updated and expanded. Um, you know, so if you look at the research on the on the UDL guidelines website for any given checkpoint, uh, it basically ends somewhere around 2017, 2018. You know, you've got a lot of references going back to the 1970s. Sometimes it's kind of cool to show like this is this is not a newfangled idea, but we also need to stay current in trends, um, you know, to, to show what, what's happening now. Second of all, that research is very um, Euro and North American centric, you know, so the, the critique has been made and it's a valid critique that education research tends to focus on very narrow global populations. Um, and so it's, I don't think that at this point we have enough evidence to say that UDL is a universally effective model. We know that it's effective in the context of you know, European and North American learners, but we don't really know how does this mesh with African, South American, Asian cultures and populations and, and frameworks. I, I don't think we know. Right. So we need more recent research. We need more intentionally representative research of different populations across the globe. Um, I also think that the UDL guidelines need to be more intentional about and the framework needs to be more intentional about connecting to equitability. Um, you know, and I know that's something CAST has been pushing hard for in the last two or three years. It's overdue, um, but I'm glad that they're doing it now. And I think that really is going to shape this next wave of UDL is exploring how UDL can partner with other um, pedagogical frameworks like culturally responsive pedagogy, for example, um, or trauma-informed pedagogy to explore, you know, what does UDL look like in conjunction with instead of in competition with some of these other models that we also know to be effective. So I think that's coming as well. I totally agree with that. I think um, I've always seen UDL as something that can can mesh quite nicely with other pedagogies that we would we would talk about quite readily. I mean, you you mentioned cultural sensitivity there. We have a uh, a program of decolonization in the UK mm. where we're trying to decolonize our curriculum, and I think UDL has a very large role to play within that. In fact, in our own institution, UDL is is part of the the vehicle that's that's trying to get us there. Uh, mm-hmm. along those lines with with decolonization so i think i think what you've mentioned is is absolutely pertinent as well as the information you provided there eric about the, the very sort of american and eurocentric research that's being carried out in relation to udl um mm-hmm. as we start to draw our conversation to a close it would be remiss of me not to ask you about assessment uh so summative assessment effectively 
one of the most challenging areas I find to advise teachers with in relation to UDL practices is around the area of summative assessment um, because there are often challenges around providing ultimate choice I guess in relation to the summative assessments that students do so it's it's not always practical to say to a student that you know you can do an essay or you can do a piece of interpretive dance because that just wouldn't necessarily work um, we always offer and espouse flexibility in those assessments if it is a, a sort of standardized assessment method I mean we try and steer colleagues away from exams where possible but let's say it was an exam we would say well look how flexible can you make that can it be open book can it be seen um you know is there the opportunity to, to word process the answers rather than hand write them can we remove time restrictions but it would just be fantastic to get your view on on best practice for assessments from a from a udl perspective just to just to finish mm -hmm. things off if mm -hmm. that's okay Absolutely. So one of the practices that I, I usually adopt when I'm designing with UDL is I overlay UDL with backward design. Uh, for those who might not be familiar with backward design, essentially this framework um, means that we start with a clear sense of what the outcome will be. Where do we want our learners to end up? From that, we determine what type of assessment um, will allow the learners to demonstrate that they have mastered that outcome to the degree that we wish. And then we finally think about methods and materials that will help get them there. This is a reversal of the way it often looks in higher education. Going back to the idea of, of an architect or an engineer building a wall before you have a plan, that's what I mean is that we oftentimes start by saying, well, I'm going to lecture. What textbook am I going to use? <laughs> of course I'll use PowerPoint, right? Before we've even thought about where are we going and who are we taking there, right? Um, so it's really important to, just to start with what is the outcome and then to design assessment that matches that. So this is one of the first major problems that I see with assessment design where UDL I think can help, especially overlaid with backward design, is that people might say, I want learners to be critical thinkers, you know, to be able to analyze and solve problems. And how do I know that they were successful? I give them a multiple choice test, right? And this is a fundamental mismatch because there's no creativity, there's no analysis, there's no um, you know, you know, problem solving with a multiple choice test. A multiple choice test is fantastic for a quick way to see what do you know? Like, can, can you find the right answer among these, right? It allows us to assess a degree of remembrance, in some cases, a degree of understanding. And in a very well-constructed multiple choice test, you can sometimes get analysis, like with case studies and very a thick description, you know, sort of answers, and they're hard to make. And that's as high as we can get. You cannot do any sort of evaluation. You can't do any kind of synthesis or creation using multiple choice test. So first, we need to make sure that our assessment matches our outcome. Um, some outcomes cannot be assessed by multiple choice tests. Um, and that's just one example. You know, they're, they're, sometimes this particular outcome requires a project or requires some sort of a demonstration of ability, right? And we just have to be thoughtful about that. Secondly, um, oftentimes our assessments erect unnecessary barriers. One of the most common that we see is time. Um, so for example, sometimes time is relevant and sometimes it's not. If I'm teaching, uh, I don't know, like pre-service -pre nurses how to administer CPR, Time is important because in, in real life practice, if you have to go look something up on the internet, 
somebody might die in the meantime, right? You have to know it and be able to do it right now. When we're talking about running, uh, about the effects of um, the U.S. Civil War on the economy of the South, time is not relevant, right? Like you can take as much time as you need to to think through and compose your response to that. And yet oftentimes we force students to do this in the context of a one-hour block, right? That's for some students is a real deterrent to allowing them to actually demonstrate what they have learned, what they really know. It just takes them a little bit longer to get their thoughts together and to organize them and to present them. So we wanna think about what, what is pertinent. Time is a, a great example of that. Another is like you said, the format. This gets a little bit complicated. So, you know, certainly we, we often hear in UDL, if you can give people the option, like, so you don't have to write an essay. You can do an essay or you can do a podcast or you can make a diorama, you know, explain it to me, whatever. Um, and sometimes that's, that's doable and sometimes it's not. The way that I've helped clarify that sometimes is to, to recognize that assessments should be focused on either content or skill. So if I'm teaching a composition course, um, writing, is the outcome, right? So the assessment has to be writing. If I'm teaching a public speaking course, public speaking is the outcome. You have to speak somehow, right? Those are skill-oriented outcomes. And when that's the outcome, I can't say, you can show me how well you can do public speaking by writing an essay, right? That's just not viable. In that case, what I wanted, where I wanna offer flexibility is in the content. And I think that we, we sometimes miss this opportunity. So I say, you know, this is public speaking, you all need to speak about this particular topic. And that topic might not be of interest to you. You might not have a lot of knowledge about that topic. If you're um, not native to this country, if you're an exchange student or you know a, a student studying abroad, you might not really understand what's going on with that current event or whatnot. So we can say I'm focused on the skill and I can be flexible in the content. We can also offer flexibility in how you get to that outcome. So, for example, if we go back to essay writing, um, I can be flexible in showing the students multiple different ways that they can organize their ideas before they start writing. Um, for students who feel like I'm a much better orator than I am a writer, I can teach them how to use widely available speech-to-text software that's now built into Google Docs or Microsoft Word and show them how you can express your ideas verbally and then go back and edit that into formal structures of an essay. Right, So we can still put flexibility in there. And what's incredible about that, critically important, is that not only will it help them be a better writer in my class right now, it's showing those students how they are effective writers, what they can do now and in the future in other classes, in their career, and elsewise, this is how you write. And this is part of what it means to be an expert learner is to figure out how I communicate, what tools I can use that, that really expand my capabilities. So if it's skill-oriented, focus on flexibility in content, focus on flexibility in how people get to that skill and express that skill. If it's content-oriented, like I want to know um, the degree to which you understand um, economic forces like supply and demand, that's a content-oriented thing that doesn't require you being able to write or speak. You know, so that's an opportunity for me to say, here's some viable options for how you can demonstrate that knowledge to me. Whatever option you choose, I'm using the same rubric that's focused on content. So make sure that you hit these content points and make them clear to me, whatever format you use, right? So 
depending on if it's scale or content, the flexibility looks different. It's not, can we offer flexibility? It's what does flexibility look like in the context of that assessment? The final thing I want to speak to there um, is being intentional about creating assessments that are realistic to the extent possible. So I often see in, in the context of higher education, we have these sort of arbitrary skills that you need to be successful in higher education and that you will never need again for the rest of your life. Um, multiple choice test taking is an example, right? For some people going to some areas, public speaking or essay writing might be something that they will never do again once they leave the Institute of Higher Education. You know, if you're, if you're preparing to be a computer scientist, you probably don't necessarily need to robust skills in public speaking. And so I think it's important within the context of certain classes and disciplines to try to find assessments that reflect the kind of thing that you will be doing if you were to pursue this. So in computer science, having them actually their assessment being coding, not a multiple choice test about coding, you know, in uh, a literature class, literary analysis, not um, and again, not a multiple choice test or whatever. The, the point is to like go out of your way to think about how can I make this most realistic, most of a preview of what people in this field actually do. And that's very motivating, I think, for students. They, they put more into it because they see that it's valuable and realistic. Um, and it, it allows students to really um, determine is this is this something that I'm I'm interested in that that I can that I want to be to do and I'm getting a realistic preview rather than having to wait till I'm much further along within a major or even have graduated with a degree and I've never actually experienced what people do and find out too late that this isn't for me. So that's an, an important aspect as well. So much of what you said there, Eric, really resonated with me. I mean, we have this big debate at the moment in UK higher education around authentic assessments, which I think mm -hmm. reflects what you mm -hmm. said about them being realistic. And mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more that there's very little point from my perspective in getting students to be assessed in a way that doesn't really happen in, in their in their chosen career path. Um, so I, I totally agree with that. Um, the point that you made actually about about the kind of backwards design and, and starting with what you want the students to be able to do, what the outcomes are. It, it mm -hmm. took me back to the first uh, learning module or learning unit that I ever was required to create for myself. And I literally just focused on the content. It was like, what is it that I want to teach them rather than what is it I want them to be able to do uh, come the end of it? And it, it, it meant it, it made um, the design of the module, but even the design of each session really challenging because I. I found it really difficult to know which content should be in and which should be out rather than, mm -hmm. as you say, thinking about backwards design and, and focusing on what I want them to do and then mm -hmm. that leading the content. But I mean, these are all I mean, these are all fantastic um, pointers, I think, for, for anybody at any stage of their UDL journey to to think about. Eric, we've unfortunately run out of time, but I mean, I've really enjoyed that. It's been absolutely fascinating to, to listen to that. And I, I really hope that our listeners have got tons and tons from it i'm sure they will um i just want to take this opportunity to to thank you once again it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on the show and i hope you'll join us again at some point in the future thank you it's been an honor to be here i appreciate the opportunity well thanks ever so much eric enjoy the rest of your day you too